Before we get into the sermon, I just a couple, three things to sort of keep us up with what's going on. We're here celebrating the first day of Unleavened Bread, a memorial and a festival about Christ and all he went through last night and today even. Uh, crucified, died about three o'clock this afternoon. So he's been those many years ago, suffering on this very day, and there's an awful lot of meaning there for us as we had that introduced to us last night. I couldn't help but reflect in a way that all those years in Worldwide we had it wrong, and this day was just a normal day after having the Passover the night before, and the Holy Day being a day later, and I remember having difficulty with that because here I was out maybe building a house and having my last hamburger while he was being turned into hamburger. And uh, it just never did quite fit. It wasn't right. And obviously now it was totally wrong. And this is that important day. Last night was the night to be much remembered. <laughs> Not tonight. <laughs> I mean... I remember the Passover. I won't remember tonight. Tomorrow, it'll all be gone. But that was, that last night was the beginning of his suffering, and he's, he suffered all through this morning. And by this clock here, he'll be dying here in about another hour and 45 minutes in history. So there's an awful lot there for us to be thinking about and remembering even as we come together to talk about him today. But a couple of three things going on in the world. <clears throat> I heard a very weird and disturbing piece of news uh, this morning. It came on Dave Hodges' program. Some of you t tuned to him. Uh, the state of Oregon is apparently banning farming. They are introducing legislation to ban farming. Now, the Willamette Valley produces an awful lot of food, uh, as does all of eastern Oregon, for that matter, and even western Oregon. It's a very liberal state. And the interesting part of this is not only are they banning farming, they are calling it sexual abuse. Their words. Now, where they make that connection is pretty much beyond me, I think. I know what is behind it. The New World Order does not want to see small farms. And the Willamette Valley is made up primarily of small farms and orchards. They want corporate farming by the big boys. They don't want everybody to have their own vine and fig tree or grow their own food uh, in a small way. So that's what this is aimed at, ultimately. I can only guess how they're making that <coughs> connection. <coughs> Probably has to do with uh, worshiping the earth, Mother Gaia, Mother Earth, and somehow farming is treating Mother Earth in a way that abuses her because it's not natural to farm 
into plow plows and make scars in Mother Earth's surface. I, this is just off the top of my head. I have no idea how they made that connection. But uh, it's something they're introducing legislation to do. Well, things are getting weirder and weirder as the days go by. Another thing I saw this morning is that uh, the European nations now, 27 of them, <clears throat> have stated that they will open Europe up this summer to American tourists. So now you'll be able to go to Europe again. If you have a vaccine passport. You cannot go to Europe without one. That is already in place. They've decided it. And to me, that's so strange. I went to Europe first when I was like 24 years old, and I've been there several times since. But all I had to do was buy a ticket and grab my passport and get on a plane. I could go to Europe. Now I can't go to Europe at all because I'm not going to have a vaccine. So my days of going to Europe are over. The world is changing very rapidly. Now, Joe Biden is, however, going to Europe. This will be the first time that he has taken what's left of his mind overseas. And uh, his first trip, it'll be interesting because he's going to Brussels, uh, the head office of NATO, I don't know why he didn't go down to the border and try to shut it down or why he didn't uh, get involved with Oregon banning farming or something here that affects us all. But he's going to Brussels to the headquarters of NATO. Now, I can probably guess pretty much why. As you know, we have a situation developing in Ukraine and Crimea next to Russia and NATO is amassing forces there, as is Russia, and war over there is a very, very likely thing. Uh, Israel is also, and Iran, pushing at each other uh, very hard through Syria. And I do believe Daniel 8, I still think, indicates that we will bomb Iran uh, before we get our own horn broken. So... Uh, what's happening over there, Russia, Iran, and that <clears throat> section of the world is very volatile right now and could break into war at any moment. So why is Joe Biden going to the headquarters of NATO? Well, my analysis of that would be that NATO is there for one purpose, war. Uh, it is an assembly of nations that are there to protect Europe and America and so on, and primarily as a war-making machine. And we know that the Pentagon loves and wants war. That's what they're about, because they make lots and lots of money on war, building ships and planes and Humvees and on and on and on it goes, bombs to make war with, and their contractors that they're in bed with make billions and billions of dollars off of every war that is instituted. So we have one about to start over there, and here he's trucking on off to Europe. He does have his vaccine passport, by the way, so he's okay that way. Anyway, 
the world we see around us is deteriorating very, very rapidly, and we need to be apprised of that. And that's why, of course, I just went through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, showing where our focus needs to be, to be close to God. Because as the world situation gets worse and worse, day by day, we need God. We need to be close to Him. Now, there are some in this country who are saying we need to be praying that God will save our nation. And yet, I can show you scriptures, and have, where God says once His judgment is passed on this nation, it will not be revoked. He is going to destroy this nation, and he is the one behind it, not the one that we're praying to to save it. And in fact, Jeremiah said, do not pray for this nation because you'll be wasting your time and energy, and I will not hear you because Israel will be punished for our sins. So you don't want to be a part of this nation. You want to be a part of the faithful to God, whom he says he will protect if we do what we're supposed to do. So closeness to him is the key right now, and it is the only protection that anyone has a possibility of having as this nation goes into famine, pestilence, war, and slavery. That's where we're headed. There are a lot of people in the conservative alternate news who recognize the trouble they recognize the danger, but they don't know the outcome. And they think that we'll have a war, and then five, ten years from now, our, we'll fight our way through it, and our economy will recover, and we'll be better off than ever we were. No, that's not what the Scripture says. Now, ultimately, and it isn't that very, but just a few years off, really, when this nation will be at peace again, but it will be in the kingdom of God in the millennium with Christ and the Father ruling. It's not going to be because some patriots with better guns survived and rebuilt. It's not going to happen that way. So thankfully we have the truth, and we know what's going on. All right, last night uh, there was quite a bit of emphasis in the scriptures we read uh, particularly from the Apostle John, uh, because after Passover we read through the instruction that Christ gave uh, his disciples uh, when they went to the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane before. And John is the one who fills that story in uh, the most completely by far. And I think you could see as we read through that why... John was so beloved of Christ, why their relationship was so close. It was because John grasped the love of God better than any of the other disciples. He had the type of personality, apparently, that gravitated toward that kind of emotion and feeling and communication Plus, he apparently was quite an obedient person, because the love of God is the keeping of his commandments. So he was on the same page with Christ almost from the beginning, by his very nature, let's say. Uh, Peter, James, the others had different personalities, good personalities, good men, made wonderful apostles, 
But John had something special there. And as we go through there, we see that it was about close communication and of becoming one with the Father and the Son. So that there's no shadow of turning. There's no variableness. There's perfect cooperation, perfect communication, perfect focus on what's going on that will be throughout eternity. And what Christ was doing there in that talk to those disciples was introducing them to friendship with him, closer than that of a servant, because he said, a servant doesn't know everything his master is doing. He only tells him what he wants him to know to get a job done, let's say. Go mow the grass. But he doesn't tell him his plans and his purposes the same way he would a friend. And a friendship, then, is to be much, much closer than an employee or a servant. So he went through there and showed that he wants us to be one as he is one. And love was the binding factor. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments in several different ways, and that his commandments express love. I had somebody try to convince me not long ago that, I think I mentioned this, that the commandments are just a sword. That the angel that was put at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out was carrying a sword because that represented the law. And the only purpose of the law is to kill you if you break it. And I don't buy that at all. The, the commandments are love. They are an expression of concern for your for God and for your neighbors. So you don't do things that hurt your neighbor. They're there so that we might not hurt each other and therefore might be deeply affectioned to each other. That's what the law is there for. Now, if we break it and we misuse and abuse our neighbors and our friends and our relatives then the law is there because the penalty of breaking it is death. So what was being espoused was somewhat correct, but not by any means completely correct. So yes, the law can kill, but the law can give life if we keep it. And that is the most important part. Dying is easy. <laughs> Living and living eternally in peace and happiness and security is a difficult chore to achieve, and none of us can do it without salvation being worked in us. We can't work our own salvation. It won't happen that way. It's a gift. Now, the Apostle Paul touched quite a bit, really, on what John said there in chapters 13 through 17 of his message. Uh, here toward the end of chapter, well, through the chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which we're all familiar with, is nicknamed the love chapter. And he talked about all the things that are coming and going, and you could have all knowledge or no prophecy and all those things, and they're passing away. And he says, when you boil it all down, there's only three things that are the most important. Three things that are the most important for us. 
It's not prophecy. It's not knowledge. Not any of those things. But it's faith, hope, and love, he says. Those three are the greatest. And then love is the most important of those three. Let's analyze that a little bit for a moment. Why is that the case? Christ did say, will I find faith on the earth when I return? And the indication was that he would not find much. It would be very rare. And we look at a world today that does not pay much attention to God whatsoever. They're worshiping idols or Mother Gaia or themselves or the entertainment world or sports or something besides God. So he gets very, very little attention, and even the ones who do claim to believe in God don't really have faith in his plan and his purpose that he's working here. They don't even know it, most of them. You are a very, very privileged few to even understand what God is doing on this earth, why he created human beings. We are the very, very small percentage of truly elite on the earth. There are those who claim to be elite, but they don't have elite knowledge. Now, that knowledge is the only thing that makes you elite. It isn't your character. It isn't your greatness in any way, because none of us are. We're all very, very human and very subject to our nature and to ego and vanity and self and all those things. That being the case, we have knowledge that is beyond the knowledge of most anyone anywhere. He has only opened the truth to a few people, and we happen to be among them. I've been thinking a little bit lately of Joel 2 there, where he says he'll bring the former and the latter rains to us in the first month. And I've been looking for that to be fulfilled for a lot of years, and I keep thinking, well, is this the year that he's going to open things up and, and bless us in ways that we haven't had? And, you know, I began to realize that maybe that's already happened. There in Joel 2, it says, in the first month, I'll bring you the former and latter rains, and then afterward, he shows the kind of things that happened at Pentecost uh, with visions and dreams and all kinds of things that would happen to uh, even young men and maidens and older people and so on in a very open thing. But when we're talking about elite knowledge, God gave Herbert Armstrong understanding of his plan and of his purpose to make man into God that no one else understood, and most of the Protestants called blasphemy, and the Catholics called blasphemy, because the greatest goal of a Catholic is to kind of see through the murk and the clouds with a beatific vision of God. But it isn't a clear vision. It's blurry. It's out of focus. And the best thing that can happen with the Catholics is that their money, their relatives keep paying money into the church 
so that their dead relatives might have a clearer view of God with less clouds. That is the greatest thing they've promised them, doctrinally. And the Protestants claim you're going to die and go sit on a cloud and wish you'd brought a magazine. I don't know what you're going to be doing. But they don't give you anything solid. But God has given us from His Word understanding that we're to become God. What an incredible thing. And only a few people were given the opportunity to understand that. Well, millions, even billions, were given opportunity through the broadcasts. But they didn't hear it or care. And only a few truly understood. And now most of them have departed in one way or another. Because why? They didn't have faith that this was true. That God was going to do this someday. So faith is a very, very important thing. Simply trusting and believing God when He gives us these promises and says it's going to happen. You've got to believe it. If you don't believe something, you're not going to pursue it. Faith is what helps give us motive and power to accomplish what we need to accomplish here because we believe it so much. You know, you've had people promise you things in your life at times and you didn't have a whole lot of confidence it was ever going to happen. Or maybe you did and you married him anyway and then it didn't. <laughs> or whatever. Or the other direction. All kinds of promises that can be made that just never transpire because people overreach. They dream big, and they promise big, and then they can't deliver. Well, God's not that way. He dreams big, He is big, and He will deliver. So we have to believe that, and believe it with every fiber of our being, and then that motivates us to do our part so that those promises can and will be fulfilled because he always makes them contingent upon our doing our part. Now that's where the rub comes, because we have difficulty doing our part. Now he can and will do his part. It's like the rainbow of Noah to him, he says. It is going to happen. Now is it going to happen with you and me? That question can only be resolved by us. If we do our part, he promises it will happen. We can't earn it. We've already sinned and come short of the glory of God, so we have to die for our sins unless they're forgiven. So we've got to repent. We have to change. We have to grow and overcome and do things more God's way. And then he will look upon us and say, Wow, there's somebody that despite the world around them and the devil and their own human nature <coughs> are swimming upstream, going against the tide, and are doing what I tell them regardless. Then he's going to have confidence that if he gives us the gift of eternal life, we will always be faithful and true and loyal to him 
which is something that Satan failed at. And the reason he made us human to start with is in case we tend to be rebellious toward him, then he can wipe us out and forget about us and move on. But he's not wanting that. Didn't Christ show a great deal of love to people? Didn't he heal them? Didn't he show compassion while he was here walking the earth? Didn't he encourage them and strengthen them and instruct them in a good way? Why? Because he loved them. Now, some religions depict the Father as being harsh as opposed to Christ who was kind and loving and gentle with people. But that's not what we heard last night. We heard they're exactly alike. And if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. So the Father himself is just as gentle, just as loving, just as kind as Christ was and is. You want to know what the Father's really like? Read about his Son. Then you know exactly what the Father is like. And he's not harsh and mean and cruel and trying to get us for what we've done. The law is not there for just a sword. It is there to lead us into proper ways of living and treating each other so that we can have eternal life. It is the embodiment of love is what it is. That side of the commandments is far more important than the death side of it, the penalty side of it. So faith is very important. That we believe God and believe that he will do what he says. Otherwise, we are of all men most miserable. Because the rest of the world's out there doing what they want and enjoying themselves. And we're struggling against the things we might want to do. Struggling against what our bodies and minds and emotions tell us we want to do. And that's not easy. Very difficult. So we have to have a strong trust, a faith in God. But you know, you're not going to need that forever. Once the change comes and the promises he made have been fulfilled, you don't have to trust that they're going to happen anymore. They will have happened. So you don't need faith in that sense any further. Now you'll need it. To always maintain, can I talk today? You will always maintain faith in God that His way of life will always continue. But it isn't the same kind of hope against hope that we deal with today in trying to believe Him when He's God and we're human and we struggle. So it's hard to believe these things are actually going to happen. So it's a different kind of faith we'll have forever because we will be eternal and He is eternal and you don't need the same level of trust when it's there and you know you're going to continue it. Now hope is the second part of the three most important things for us. Hope moves you forward. Now I've done some hunting in my life. And I've been in some areas where there was virtually 
no game, no animals to hunt. Now, my hope of bagging a deer or something under those circumstances is very low. And when I knew that if I climbed that mountain, as steep and high and rugged as it was, I probably wouldn't find anything. I didn't have enough hope to even get me up there. I'd just go somewhere else, do something different. There just wasn't hope there. So you don't perform very well if you don't have hope. Very, very important for us. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So whether it be a simple physical thing or something else, spiritual, hope is so important. You hope you'll get a raise. Well, if you spend most of your time sleeping in the coffee room, your hope goes down <laughs> because you're not performing at a level that would cause anybody to want to give you a raise. They might give you a pink slip, but not a raise. So our hope can be either strengthened by our performance or it can be weakened by our performance. But it's one of the big three. So where do you get hope? Well, you read these pages where God promises all these things, and the more we read here, the more it kindles our hope that it's true because we're being reminded of it. If you have a goal, your dad's promised you a bicycle. And he says, if you'll mow the lawn every week for ten weeks, I'm going to buy you a bicycle. Well, your hope is increased each week because you're performing. And you believe your dad, don't you, that he will perform? Probably. And so, therefore, you have strong hope that if you do your part, it's going to happen. God's the same way. We keep track of where things are by reading these pages to increase our hope. Now, consider the last thing. The greatest above faith and above hope is love. Now, just why would it be more important than the other two? You only need faith, really, until the change comes. You only need hope until you get the bicycle, right? You know, not hoping for a bicycle anymore. You got it. So you don't need hope. And once you're made eternal and immortal, you won't need hope that that will happen because it's history. It occurred. It's done. You need love forevermore. Because the Father and the Son are perfectly together in love. They think exactly the same way. They don't argue. They don't fight. There's no shadow of turning between them. They have an absolutely perfect relationship which you and I cannot even begin to understand because we've never had one like that in our lifetime and never will as a human being. There will always be difficulties between humans because of ego and self and all the things that make us up. You cannot, as a human, get completely away from all that. It's just there. 
Now, you can work at it, and you can make a better relationship, perhaps, in whatever relationship it might be with any other human being, but you'll never get it perfect. I've had people tell me that they'd never, uh, married couples, been married for years, that they'd never had a fight, that they never disagreed, and I think, what are you smoking? This has not occurred. <laughs> there are no two human beings on this earth that think exactly alike. And if they do, they're murderers in a drug cartel somewhere. That's the closest to thinking alike they might be, I don't know. But no, there will always be difficulties as human beings. But the Father and the Son have no difficulties between them at all. And they have invited us, as per what we read last night by, from the Apostle John, that they want us to be right there with them and never have problems. Beyond my comprehension, but I believe it because he says it. And I look at the harmony and the beauty of the creation that God made and all the wonderful, beautiful things that he did. And I can't imagine the Father and the Son. No man has seen them in their glory. Okay? Be like looking at the sun, it would kill you. So we can't really imagine what they're really like. So the way I go about it is I go out into the creation that they made, and I look at the trees and the squirrels and the bees and the birds and the deer and the fish and the clouds, and all these wonderful things that are so pleasing to a human's perspective. Even my own yard with my chickens and goats are such marvelous little things. And how they multiply and they give you milk that tastes so good and eggs that are wonderful with it. And I look at all these things and I think, whoever did this, I would like to be around them forevermore, simply because this is what they do. I don't know for sure what they look like. I don't know sure for sure what it's like to be a spirit. But if they did this, that's where I want to be. And you know, that's what he's told us. He says, we are, it was in that last night, we will come and dwell with you, the Father and the Son. Where did we get the idea all those years that Christ was coming down to rule a thousand years and the Father would be still up in heaven? <clears throat> no. They're coming to dwell with us here. And when the heavenly Jerusalem comes down, the Father and the Son are the temple of it. They're both here. And the earth is going to be made beautiful again after all the pollution that you and I and the rest of us here have created, and it will be pristine and beautiful again. Not to be worshipped. The two who made it need to be worshipped. Not what was made, Romans 1. But I love it so much, and he's going to let us inherit it. The meek will inherit the earth. 
this is where I want to be. And I want them here with me since they made it, and they must be pretty good beings to do this. Now, that's how I think in order to increase my understanding and my hope and my faith in them by the things that they've made. And even our bodies, which are fearfully and wonderfully made, all the systems that go together to make a human operator incredible. And we breathe and think and see and feel and walk around. Now, I can make things. You can. I've built houses. I've built barns. I've built uh, all kinds of things in my life. But none of them lived and breathed and walked around. Well, I guess kids, <laughs> they live and breathe and walk around. But I didn't do it. That was a system God set up. What a wonderful system. We had nothing to do with it, but we can reproduce ourselves. And the lesson is that he is producing himself in us, his children. What an incredible analogy he used, or system he set up to show us that. He could have made it where humans appeared any old way. But he did it through the coming together in love of a husband and wife. And that produces those children in the image of God and in your image. And then the lesson should be God is producing you in his image the same way. So he just set up the system to teach us. That's all. It's there to teach us. And he loves us enough that he went through all this planning and then the creating and then putting up with us until he does change us. Human beings, about seven billion of us now, are spoiled brats. Selfish to the core, doing what we want, getting angry if we don't get what we want, being upset, frustrated, and depressed and suicidal if we can't have what we want, taken to an extreme. And he's watching all this. <laughs> Isn't it a wonderful thing? Would you like to be sitting there, able to see everybody and every sparrow that falls, and see all that's going on on this earth day by day by billions of people. What a wretched thing to watch. Murders and abuse and theft and torture and all kinds of things going on. And he sees it all. Now that tells me that he must love us an awful lot in order to put up with that until he can change us and make us sweet and lovable and kind toward each other. Because we're just like Satan the devil himself for the most part as a world full of people. All kinds of chicanery and hurt and murder and drugs and abuse of alcohol and everything. 
And so we're pretty miserable overall. But he's willing to put up with that because he has a plan. In the millennium, he's going to make it where you do what's right, and he doesn't have to watch this mess anymore. Or somebody grabs you and says, no, you're not going to do that. We don't do that here. That, that was yesterday. We, we have a new time now. You're not going to do that anymore. Oh, okay. You mean I can't kill him? No, that doesn't happen today. whole different world. And then in the great white throne judgment, it'll be the same way for all those who died as babies or died as hundred-year-old people and never knew who God was and went through a world of Satan, the devil, and human nature and were miserable in it overall. And then they'll be resurrected and He'll have their attention, and then they'll say, this is the way, walk in it, same as in the millennium. And then there will be peace and order on earth, and God will then change those people into spirit beings because they've learned how to live successfully. Everybody on earth wants peace, security, happiness, and joy. Everybody wants good things. So they try to take them away from each other. That's not the way it works, happily. That's what we want, but we don't want to do it God's way. We think what we want, we can get our way. And then we usually wind up with problems, because we did it our way. Frank Sinatra did it his way. And it wasn't real happy, and now he's pretty well rotted, and he'll come up in the great white throne judgment and do it God's way. Maybe he'll sing about it. I did it God's way. (laughs) That'd be nice to hear, wouldn't it? People who completely change their outlook from selfish to giving and loving. That has to last forever and ever, and that's why it's the most important thing, because love is what creates happiness and joy. Everybody wants love, but they want it their way and selfishly for the most part. You love me. You take care of me. Maybe I'll return it a little. But we want something done for us first as a human being. All right. So love is established as the greatest thing. Now, John the Apostle lived for nearly 70 years after Christ was crucified. And what he wrote in the Gospel of John that we read last night about the relationship between the Father and the Son and us is something that he never lost. He had it down better than the others did at that point in time. And then he went through almost 70 years of human life after that. I don't know how old he was when Christ was crucified, probably late 20s, 30s or so on, because he lived another 70 years and was an old, old man when the church had basically disappeared in 100 A.D., 70 years after it was instituted, roughly, just like Worldwide did, about 70 years, and it was done. The cycle was finished. Same back then. So John was the last man standing. All the other 
apostles had been killed, uh, and he was the only one left alive, and was the only one who was not martyred, actually. Although there is, uh, historically, the Jews believe that he was boiled in oil, and it just didn't hurt him, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or like Daniel in the lion's den. So he may have actually been boiled in oil and not hurt by it. And God might have given him that partially because he was a man who had the kind of love that God wants us all to have. And maybe he spared him that pain and that ignominious death. I don't know that, but perhaps it's so. Because when you get to the first epistle of John, which he wrote not at the beginning of his life after, or of his spiritual life after Christ died. He wrote that soon thereafter. And then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he wrote almost 70 years later, uh, at the end of his life. And I want to get into that. We'll get partly into it today, looks like. Because it echoes what he wrote when he was probably 30-ish when he was 90, almost 100-ish. And all that had been said in between from Christ and his sayings and all that the apostles taught and all that Paul taught, because Paul is the one that Protestants and others make the most uh, use of to try to prove the law isn't real anymore and it's been done away and so on. If they use anybody, it'll be Paul. And what they're doing is misusing and taking out of context and abusing what Paul wrote. Uh, Paul did write some things hard to understand, and even Peter said so. I'm a fisherman. I, I didn't learn that language. I, I don't, I'm not sure what Paul's always saying. So that should be clear to us when we read Paul, is that some things are going to be difficult. Now, the Protestants will tell you it's not difficult. He's doing away with the law. That's easy. Not difficult. Well, John was the one apostle who outlived all the others by far. He had heard everything that they had preached. He had read everything that they had written, because all these epistles at that point of all the writers, including Paul, had already been made available. And they'd been sent to John. So he had read everything. And he was the one, remember, who was leaning on Christ's chest. And when there was something that they were a little afraid to ask Jesus, they'd say, John, you ask him. They thought he was the one who would incur Jesus' wrath less than any of them, or would hurt his feelings or whatever. They were just a little afraid to ask certain questions, so when they got in that attitude, hey, John, you ask him. We saw an example of that last night. We do that, don't we? You ask. No, you ask. We did it as kids. Ask Daddy, ask Mommy. Oh, you ask. We were a little afraid of the reaction. Well, that's the same way they were. So here is the one that was closest to the Messiah the one he communicated with better 
and had a closer relationship with. He didn't not like the others. It just there was just a special something there between them. And he is the one that the Father and the Son decided to keep alive for the whole time that the church would exist in the first century. <coughs> and give the, the last testimony. First, second, third John, the book of Revelation. So we need to pay particular attention to John who saw it all, heard it all, was the last man standing... And had the final word. Had analyzed it all, heard it all, knew it all. Now to me, in that sense, it makes him a more credible witness than Peter or Paul or anyone else. Because he'd been around the longest and heard it all and the rest of them hadn't. And he was still close to his Savior. Because he had been when he was here, and that never went away. So John is probably the most credible witness of all. So let's go to the first epistle, General of John, and see what John has to say as the last man standing. This, this is really, really important. Anything you want to take from what Paul said and twist around, you can go to John and see what the real answer might be and how you or others might be misinterpreting Paul who wrote things difficult to understand. It wasn't that Paul was wrong. He just had a scholarly way of putting things that was hard for the average person to understand. But John is very simple and direct. Hard to misunderstand what he says. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Christ, Christ is the word. John 1.1, 1, 1, he's the one who explained that first, that Christ is the word, the word of God. So he establishes right here at the very beginning of this letter... His authority in establishing that he had been with Christ, had seen him, had heard him, had touched him, had handled him, looked upon him, and had been very close to him. Okay? We do that with witnesses in court, don't we? You get a witness up there and say, have you met this man? Nah, I never heard of him. I don't know him. Well, why are you here as a witness? No, they'll go through very carefully and say, how long have you known them? What kind of character do they have? What have you seen them do? Did you see them do this? They go through all kinds of questions to establish that there was some kind of relationship there so that you might know what went on. That's all he's doing here. He's letting us know, I'm a witness first-hand witness. And he explains a little more. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show to you uh, that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. 
Christ had had eternal life. He had come as a human, was manifested to the apostles. And that's who he's including here as eyewitnesses, he being, in this sense, the chief and the last one. So that which we have seen and heard, eyes and ears both, declare we to you, writing to the church here, that you also may have fellowship with us. Now remember what he said last night where Christ had those twelve there and he was instructing them very carefully in how he wanted to be or include them as friends, how he wanted them to be at one and close with him and the Father. And he had manifested that to them. Now they were to go out and teach that to the church. And John is the last one here, and he's writing to the church. <coughs> here is the message that Christ once heard. So we're declaring it to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. Now Christ had said to them, I want you to be my friends, and I want those who listen to you to be my friends as well. So he wasn't just addressing those twelve that he wanted to be his close circle of friends. He was including any who might be taught by them. Now, you and I have been taught by Peter and James and John and Paul. So he wants us included as his friends because we have heard their teachings, just as he said there in John. And he is extending this invitation as well to the ones he's writing to many, many years later. It's still valid. And therefore, it's valid for you and me. I have difficulty, and have, I guess, all my life, to one degree or another, Wondering why God would have any interest in me. I mean, I look at my mind the way it is naturally from the time I was a child growing up and the things I've thought, the things I've done, how little like God I've really been. And I think, why would He care? <laughs> why would He want me around? Well, the truth of the matter is He doesn't. He wants a changed me around like he wants a changed you around. He doesn't want us like we were. The Protestants can sing all the songs they want to about just as I am, Lord, just as I am. No, he doesn't want you the way you am. I'm sorry. He wants you, but he wants you different than the way you are. So that's what we have to reconcile. So I look at me and I think, why would God want me? And then I think, well, if I would be like this, then it's obvious He'd want me. So I need to be like this. So that's why we're here working on it. <clears throat> he, he desires from His heart and mind for us to be His friends. So He says, come and follow me. Do as I do. Walk as I walked. And you'll be like the Father, and He will know you. Christ said when He comes back, 
Some will say, oh, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, who are you? I don't know you. You're not like me at all. You know, you meet somebody and sometimes there's an instant connection because somehow you sort of know that you think somewhat alike or have had some experiences the same. It doesn't take too long to make some of those connections, 10 minutes or two hours or a month, whatever. But some people you get to know pretty quickly and others take more time because of differences in personality. Nothing wrong with either one, but just different. Well, God recognizes us all, but he's looking for people who think like he does, who act like he does. And then when he sees them, he'll say, oh, I know you. You've been living like I live. Now come and be part of my kingdom. Or somebody who's obtuse and rebellious and doesn't want to do things his way, he'll say, I don't know that. That's the way of life I'm not going to be friends with, not going to have anything to do with. That's all he's saying. So, he says that we, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, that's what he was offering, what we read last night, is that kind of close fellowship where we become at one with the Father and the Son. It's not blasphemy to want to be like them and one with them. That's what he offers. That's what he desires. That's what he created us for, is to be so close to him that we get along perfectly and never have any problems among us. And the bride has to... 144,000 have to be that way too. A perfect bride for Christ, who is a perfect husband. So, we're working on becoming that. And we have a long, long way to go. But the invitation is there. The hope then is there. And the faith that it can happen is there. And now we're working on the love that is required in order to achieve that. It's the greatest thing we can work on is loving each other. He'll say that here in a minute. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the highest fellowship or the highest friendship, the highest relationship that there can possibly be. And these things write we to you that your joy may be full. A joy is the fruit of God's Spirit. And joy in this world sometimes is hard to come by. We can have a certain amount of joy in life and in things and in each other, uh, but it's limited. But he wants us to have the full amount of joy, which can only come from being at one with the Father and the Son. That's the greatest joy, then. And it is imparted by the Holy Spirit, the Comforter that He sent, that we talked about. He wants your joy to be full. This, then, is the message which we have heard of Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Complete, wonderful, beautiful light. 
Men stumble in the darkness. And this world, even though God's sun still shines on it, is in utter darkness. It is a satanic world run by Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air, and it has satanic ways of doing things. It is a selfish world. It is a world where people misuse and abuse each other. It's not a way to live. This is an awful way to live. Now, we are seeing some of the light from above. And he tells us he wants our light to shine so the whole world may see. And he says then that when he gathers his remnant of his church that is still faithful, that they will shine as a light from Zion to the world. The only light in the world, because the rest is in utter spiritual darkness. And he's even going to make the sun go dark. So that's actual darkness as well, the day of the Lord. So that everybody sees this is a dark, ungodly world. And his people, shining from Zion and living there, are the only ones that will impart light to the world. The rest will have followed the beast and the devil. In him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Worshiping Christ and the Father in word only is a lie. Because you're actually doing the things of human life that are dark. And God is all light, and the dark and the light don't go together. We have to walk into his light and share it because we're doing the things we do the way he does them. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's what that Passover is all about, is cleansing us from all sin. Now, right after the Passover, remember he said, Now you were clean. Totally clean. Except for one who was Judas. But everybody else was pronounced clean. Now, clean means clean. That Passover symbolizes sin being wiped away, gone, done, because he wants to look upon us as clean. He doesn't want a bunch of dirty little kids. He wants us clean. You know, parents do that too. You don't want a dirty little kid. Don't want one that smells like, hmm. You want them clean. So when they mess up, you clean them up. Because you like them clean. Grandparents like clean children handed to them. Not that, you know, they dirty their diaper. Oh, okay, here, Grandma, have it. No, Grandma don't want it. Sorry. <laughs> clean it up first and hand it to me. Well, Christ wants us clean, like he is. So he instituted the Passover to do that. 
Now, he'll forgive us at any time, but we repent. But Passover is the one time a year that we have the anniversary of what he did for us, and we go through it in order to have that feeling of cleanliness that we might not have on Thursday in December. But it's something we feel especially at Passover because it's renewing what he did for us. And we partake of the bread and the wine that represents his body and his blood. And when that Passover is done, we should walk out not feeling sinful, not feeling dirty. We should feel clean. That's how we should feel spiritually. Now, if I work out in the dirt all day or clean out the chicken house and shovel manure all day, let's say, I don't feel clean at the end of the day. I feel really yucky. And then I go in and take a hot shower, and all that washes off. And I get out of the shower, how do I feel? Clean. Feels so good to come out of a hot shower when you're dirty and have been cleansed. Well, spiritually speaking, that's the way we should have felt last night when we walked out of here. All sin removed by he who could do so. And then recognizing we're still human, we have seven days tacked onto that in which we continue to put sin out of our lives. And I think the symbolism there is very, very important too. In that the first day represents the day he did what he did to rid the world of sin and to rid you and me of sin through his sacrifice and this Passover day. So he is the primary one involved here on this day especially because just shortly now he's going to be dying on the tree in history. Going through terrible and excruciating pain right now. Those years ago. And about to say, why have you forsaken me, Father? Now God tells us he'll never forsake us, but he forsook Christ. He forsook it. Why have you forsaken me? You know why he did? You know the answer to that. He had not sinned, so God would not forsake him for anything he had done. He forsook him for what you and I have done. That's why he forsook him. Because he was filthy with our sins. And he died, and those sins went away. And last night, you partook of his death, and your sins went away. Now, how dare any one of us to go back A day, a week, a month, a year, ten years. And accuse each other of anything. Anything. When God forgives something, he moves on. It's gone. It isn't there anymore. He wipes it out through the blood of his son. It doesn't make a bit of difference what you did five years, ten years, fifty years ago. 
Quit worrying about it. It's finished. It's done. It doesn't exist anymore. We don't live in the past. We live in the future. Hope for the future. Faith in the future. Love of each other that we might enjoy the future together. The past is done. Quit dragging around behind you. And don't let anybody else drag it along behind you either. It's abominable for us to dig around at the base of the cross and try to find each other's sins. They're gone. They're wiped out by His blood. You have nothing that you are guilty of if you're under that blood. And if you sin tomorrow and you ask for forgiveness, He wipes that out too. It is a continual sacrifice that He did for you and me. Now, do you have any faith? Do you believe that? Do you believe with all your heart that what he went through was big enough to forgive your sins and those of your mate and your children and your uncle and your aunt and everybody you know and everybody that you don't know? It's that big. Faith is one of the three important things. So you either have faith that he forgave you, or you don't. And if you do, then quit worrying about the past. The evil of today is sufficient. So quit worrying about the past. And quit bringing up anybody else's past. Because God tells us that once we're in his kingdom... Our sin will never again be mentioned to us. And if we understand true doctrine, when he returns to bring his bride to resurrect her or change her, whichever, whether we're alive or dead, he's not going to sit us down and tell us our sins and point out our faults and give us a judgment in that form. We are being judged today. Judgment is now upon us as spiritual Israelites. And therefore, he will have examined and analyzed you and me, and he will have already passed judgment, and will have accepted us, and we will not sit down in front of him and the books be opened and judged by the things in them, because we will already have lived it and be either in or out. You'll either rise from the earth or you won't. One of the two. And if you do, he's not going to say halfway up, what are you doing coming up here? No, he will have already made the judgment. You're in. And then that kicks in that your sin will never be mentioned to you. He's already judged you worthy of being in his kingdom. And there's nothing more to say. If you're in, you're in. 
end of story, or beginning of story, really. So let's not pester each other with the past, with our mouths. Let's not pester ourselves with the memory of sins that we've committed in the past. They're gone. The only place they live is in your mind. They don't live in God's mind. He is able to put it out in a way. Gives us a fresh start every day, he says in Lamentations. Give yourself a fresh start. You're trying to do what you need to do and be what you need to be. And if you're dragging this trailer load of sin behind you, it impedes your progress. It holds you back. Unhitch the trailer. God did. And we need to do the same thing. Fear is something that love casts out. If we fear our past, then we don't have the love of God casting that fear out. So this is a matter of faith. Not just a matter of faith can we be in the kingdom of God, but faith in the blood of our Savior that it really did wipe out our sins, and therefore we don't need to worry about them. The only sin we need to worry about is today's sin. And then when tomorrow comes, tomorrow's sin. But you don't need to worry about tomorrow either. Sufficient for the day, this day, is the evil era. So we all came out of the laundry last night, all came out of the wash. You know, that's what they say. It'll all come out in the wash. Well, it did last night. And we came, we left here clean as you can get. Now let's keep it that way. And if we mess up, let's repent and change and grow and overcome, and we'll be in the kingdom of God. Well, I've gone over time a bit, but that's okay.